0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to at Yale live. I'm Eric Gershon. Today, we talk chemistry, climate and science policy with Paul Anastas, director of Yale Center for Green Chemistry and Green Engineering. Often called the father of green chemistry, he has served in a series of high-level federal science policy posts, most recently as assistant administrator of the US EPA where he led research. In the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, he was assistant director for the environment. As always, we'll take some of your questions, tweet us at Yale, or email us at socialmedia at yale.edu. Paul Anastas, thanks for being with us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I'd like to ask you a question first about an essay that you wrote as a schoolboy, uh-huh. I gather, that uh, somehow or other was noticed by the administration of Richard Nixon. Tell us, tell us that story about what was the essay about and do you have any idea how the Nixon administration came <laughs> to know about it?
0: That is a, that's a true story. That's funny because uh, so I, I grew up in uh, Quincy, Massachusetts. It's a small town right south of Boston. And I was overlooking this beautiful wetland. Uh, uh, Teeming with wildlife, all kinds of birds and and, and things, until the bulldozers rolled in. And the bulldozers rolled in, and now if you go up to where I was born, you'll see nothing but uh, glass buildings of banks and insurance companies. So I was furious, and I, uh, among other things, I wrote this essay because the EPA had just been founded, and they were trying to popularize it and get attention, and so um, I wrote that essay as part of an essay contest never thinking that I was going to be uh, receiving some kind of recognition from Richard Nixon.
1: (laughs) That's who? Do you still have it?
0: Oh, it's on my wall. If you go to my office here at Yale, you will see uh, my plaque from Richard Nixon when I was uh, eight years old. So you went on, you became a scientist.
1: Uh, You're often called the father of green chemistry. Uh, How did the term come about and what is green chemistry?
0: So, uh, I, I'm very proud to be part of a worldwide community of folks that are doing green chemistry. The, the term, people think I'm joking uh, when they say, how did you come up with this term green chemistry? Because back 20 years ago, not everything was green this and green that. But green conjures up images of the environment and the natural world. But in the US, it's also the color of our money. And so really what green chemistry is about is how do you meet all of the goals of uh, making things healthier for people and the planet, while at the same time meeting your economic goals and aligning those rather than having them work at cross purposes as we've done for so long. Say more. So, green chemistry looks at the world recognizing that everything that we see, touch, and feel is a chemical. Uh, everything that's the basis of our society and our economy is made from a chemical. And so, when we look at all of the positive that chemistry has done, uh, revolutionized medicine, revolutionized agriculture, communications, that cannot be dismissed. But it also has to, has to be recognized that uh, we did it in a with a lot of unintended consequences. We, we have to recognize that there's been uh, disasters. Love Canal, uh, uh, what we're doing with, with climate change, as we'll talk about today. Uh, what we're doing even far more recently with uh, the tragedy in, in West Virginia mm-hmm. and the contamination of water. So green chemistry is simply saying we can do better. That in the same way that we'd never accept a beautiful building if it collapsed, we'd never uh, accept a delicious meal if it was poisonous, there's, there's no reason that we should accept the kind of behavior of, uh, of chemicals if they provide wonderful function but they cause toxicity and harm. Uh, there's, as I understand it,
1: sort of 12 core principles mm-hmm. of green chemistry. Um, is there a way to distill those 12 to one fundamental principle?
0: Yeah, the, the 12 principles go across the the entire life cycle of a, of a chemical, from its feedstocks to what it does during use and end of life. But really, if you distill it down to uh, uh, one statement, it's, design your products and your processes so that they reduce or eliminate hazards to human health and the environment that's it looking at the intrinsic hazard
1: how can green chemistry be used how is it being used how might it be used to help us address climate change is is there is it mitigating climate change and if not yet how could it
0: yeah absolutely So across a wide spectrum, green chemistry is being applied to problems that are directly relevant to climate change. So you obviously would start with alternative energies. Um, Alternative energies that are non-fossil based would be the the key way that that green chemistry is addressing them. Uh, I'd have to say uh, right here at Yale, uh, we have the Yale Energy Institute. And and some of the work uh, there and even in my own labs is looking at how you can split water to produce hydrogen as an energy source uh, and, and in the process generate water back as a byproduct. Uh, there's ways of looking at renewables, uh, uh, new generation biodiesel, all of these are directly related to, to green chemistry and, and require chemistry in order to, to do this. Uh, there's also a key area that's always been part of, uh, of chemistry that's now being looked at and that is catalysis. Catalysis is using a very small amount of a substance to make things happen faster, with less waste, and this has resulted in energy efficiencies across every sector of our economy. So, yeah, green chemistry and climate change are, I would say, inextricably linked.
1: Science policy question. You spent a lot of time in Washington in various capacities, yeah, um, and not so long ago. Yeah. Do you think that the science community could have done better to uh, convince policymakers and the public of the significant threat climate change poses to civilization sooner? And how might the science community have done that?
0: Yeah. So um, absolutely. I I think that when we look at – any of the great grand challenges that we're facing uh, around sustainability, climate change being uh, at the forefront, Uh, communication is a a tremendous um, challenge. Now the first chemist that I'm aware of uh, to raise a a flag on climate change was probably uh, Arrhenius back in 1896. And so it's not that it hasn't been known that increasing CO2 levels are going to uh, cause these types of effects. But the ability to, to communicate, the ability to make compelling cases and languages that people can understand, uh, whether it's the public, whether it's policymakers, uh, I think is a, is a tremendous responsibility of the scientific community and one that hasn't been uh, as embraced and engaged as it needs to be. Uh, you, you need to, to speak the language of the tribe you're talking to, mm. and if you need to convince policymakers, then... Having a scientific definition of the word uncertainty, and a um, a popular version of the mm. word uncertainty, that can that can and is causing uh, so much difficulty in uh, communication.
1: Uh, you you obviously get that because you've just articulated it nicely. Do you have the sense that uh, the other scientists uh, working in uh, science policy positions in Washington are really internalizing that and improving at that?
0: i 'd suggest that maybe there 's been uh, uh, a bit of historical it 's not my job. Mm. my job is to generate the the data is to seek the truth and it 's not my job to to communicate or translate mm. uh, I think that the that the scientific community writ large is is um, is learning the lessons and, and in some cases reaping the bitter fruit of uh, mm-hmm. of that lack of emphasis on communication so there 's um, You know, communicating um, factual observations uh, is not the same as um, becoming a subjective advocate. Mm -hmm. No scientist wants to become a subjective uh, advocate. Objectivity is absolutely essential. But being able to communicate that objectivity, it's my (laughs) my perspective that that's absolutely essential. Slightly
1: different take on a similar question. What is your view of the, the relationship between science and government
0: policy? That is, they don't always seem to be in sync. Right. So uh, when you look at the, at the fundamental science that's generated, the, the data that's generated, that is core foundational um, uh, to, uh, to the scientific um, uh, endeavor, right? But then you start saying, how do we put this in the context of, uh, the, the role of government and trying to help individuals, help society, uh, and all of a sudden you have a, a lot of, of factors. Um, you want to make sure that when that decision process is, uh, is being made, and of taking science and, and turning it into policy, that it's not, that, that it's being done with some consistency. And so you generate policies, protocols for how you use the science. Getting those protocols for how you turn science into policy takes time and approval and goes through many hurdles. In that time, science is not standing still. So many of the protocols you're using to form the policy are no longer using the most up-to-date science. This is something that we need to um, address, recognize, and resolve, but it's, uh, uh, that conflict between science and policy and this area of science policy is a great challenge.
1: I'm going to take a question from a uh, viewer. This question comes uh, from Mark Johnson, who tweeted it at us. He asks, should we change policy to disaster mediation from fossil fuel substitutes?
0: Mm. So when you look at the current state of affairs with regard to climate change, I'm thinking that most folks realize that we are no longer talking about avoiding the effects of climate change. Climate change is here. We are going to have effects, and I can understand uh, why the um, the question is phrased And do we simply engage in disaster mitigation. But I think actually John Holdren, who is the president's science advisor, said it best, we have to manage the unavoidable and avoid the unmanageable. So it's absolutely true that we need to be thinking about adaptation. And uh, President Obama what, two or three days ago just announced a uh, uh, a fund uh, proposed a fund for climate adaptation but i think it's equally important that if we're going to um, avoid the worst types of consequences of climate change then we absolutely still need to take every action available to us currently.
1: another question This one uh, by facebook from david kim who asks will energy consumption impact america as a viable threat in the next
0: ten years will our energy consumption
1: Will, will energy consumption impact America as a viable threat in the next 10 years, which I, 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 it sounds to me like is a question about the way we're consuming energy now yeah. and whether we need to change it ASAP.
0: Yeah. I have to say that I'm, I'm probably a little bit of a, a, a heretic in these discussions because uh, we are uh, really not discussing whether or not we want to minimize energy use. We're surrounded by energy, we're swimming in energy. All that we have in this world, in this universe, is energy and matter. Uh, what we're talking about is, is not minimizing all energy. That's, that's really uh, an impossibility. We're talking about the nature of the energy. Mm. Uh, so uh, when we start selecting the inherent nature, is it going to be uh, renewable or is it going to be depleting? Is, is, it, is it going to uh, be be minders are going to be harvested, whether it's harvested from uh, from the sun or from uh, from the ground so i'd say that I'm all for using um, uh, potentially even more energy as long as the nature of that energy is inherently more sustainable
1: so uh, to follow up on that question, I think it was just yesterday that President Obama announced uh, that he's asked the EPA to draw up uh, new, tighter standards for fuel efficiency for really big trucks. Right. So right.
0: what would your take on that be? Oh, it's a, it's a very important step. It's, it's part of uh, the, the progression where there's been uh, addressing off-road vehicles. Then uh, there's the current process of addressing um, uh, various power plants uh, that's uh, ongoing. Even though these large vehicles make up a, a relatively small percentage of the um, uh, of the vehicles on the road, I think it's four or five percent of the vehicles on the road. They have the the energy demand and the and the um, uh, and the impacts of about fifty percent of uh, of all vehicle traffic. So taking on that very large issue, I think, is absolutely essential and part of a a strategy that I think is being rolled out.
1: A lot of the conversation about climate change and a lot of the research seems to focus on carbon dioxide. Mm. Uh, and there are uh, good reasons and obvious reasons for that. But it's not the only greenhouse gas. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the other greenhouse gases, uh, perhaps methane, mm-hmm. um, that are also a serious threat and how
0: uh, we can address some of those? Certainly. So when you look at some of the um, the greenhouse gases, CO2 is obviously... Um, first and foremost, simply because of volume. Uh, the, the, the volume that's being pumped into the atmosphere is, uh, you know, when you have a gigaton uh, type of issue, that, um, that tends to be the headline. But you're absolutely right. So when you look at the, uh, our history of CFCs, CF, uh, CFCs and uh, uh, different halons. CFCs, haylots. would you define
1: that just Oh, certainly. Yeah. Uh,
0: chlorofluorocarbons, yeah. which are used as propellants. Uh, they, they could be used as fire extinguishing agents, uh, uh, which were being phased out uh, a number of years ago under the Montreal Protocol, they could have a potency as a greenhouse gas uh, 10,000 times or more than mm-hmm. of CO2. You mentioned um, methane. that uh, That is a much more potent greenhouse gas, but you also have to weigh how long is it going to stay in the atmosphere. CO2 might build up for uh, a century or more, where the lifetime of, of methane is more potent but a shorter lifetime. Mm. Uh, so when we start talking about energy shifts to methane due to fracking and things like that, we need to know is that going to cause a short-term uh, a short-term spike in our global climate change concerns? Besides methane, others. Yeah. So the the halons. Some of the people might remember the old Nike sneakers. Uh, uh, the called Nike Airs. Well, the little bubble in Nike Air. That wasn't filled with air, uh, so so that uh, that halon was actually uh, one that had a, a greenhouse gas twenty six thousand times more potent uh, than uh, yeah than uh, CO two than CO two than CO two. Yeah. Uh, so and of course that was phased out uh, by a, a wonderful green chemist invention by a person named Richard Will at the University of Delaware, and now it actually is air, in uh, in the Nike Airs, but. Um, even such things as water vapor, the reason why so many of the uh, uh, concerns for greenhouse gases, the role of clouds, the role of water vapor in so many of our models is, uh, uh, is not straightforward. It makes it complex. i
1: I'm going to ask you a question about some work uh, you're doing here at Yale. Uh, you are the director uh, and, and uh, founder, one of the founders of the, the Center for Green Chemistry and Green Engineering here at Yale. Mm-hmm. Just give us a quick overview of the center and some of the projects that you're,
0: uh, you're most interested in right now. Great. Yeah, the so the Center for Green Chemistry and Green Engineering uh, at here at Yale is focused on um, not on just simply measuring, monitoring, reviewing, or assessing environmental problems. It's saying, what is the and therefore? okay, We have all of these challenges. And therefore, what do we do about it? So it's really a, an innovation center. So we're doing fundamental research um, a, a, across the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, the Chemistry Department, the School of Engineering. Uh, and, but it doesn't end there. The, the center has partnerships and programs with uh, the School of Law, the School of Management, the School of Public Health, the School of Divinity. Why? Because. It's not simply about doing basic research. It's about having those discoveries, having that awareness, and translating it into products and processes so that those will either be new companies, um, uh, new technologies that will be spun out. Uh, so. One of the early companies that was spun out is something called P2 Sciences that's right here in New Haven. It makes renewable uh, specialty chemicals, everything from flavors and fragrances. Uh, and it's, uh, it's really, I, I don't even want to call it a startup. It's an emerging company that's, uh, that's there. And we're also spinning out things around lignin technology and catalyst technology. Some of our work will also inform next generation curriculum. How does it teach the next generation of scientists and engineers? Some of it might affect policy. But the whole point is that it's not enough to simply have some scientific result, submit it to a journal, and uh, let on. it be read by the yeah. scientist. It needs to, we need to strive to make sure that it has an impact.
1: You mentioned the Divinity School. I'm yeah. very curious about that. What, is, what are you doing with the Divinity School? So
0: um, when we're talking about sustainable technologies, everybody recognizes that it's not enough to just have a technological solution, that if you're going to... Install this whether it 's in um, rural America and the developing world that you're going to want to make sure that that technology maybe it's around water purification or alternative energy is uh, socially um, culturally appropriate mm. uh, and so dealing with those issues we have some uh, wonderful partners who I think the the world of at the um, at the divinity school it's uh, uh, Mary Evelyn Tucker and John Grimm who are uh, just tremendously thoughtful in this area hmm. Yeah.
1: To to what extent um, has green chemistry become mainstream, um, if it has? And if it hasn't, what's it going to take to make it mainstream? What's it going to take for green chemistry to not be an alternative chemistry but the only acceptable chemistry?
0: Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great way of phrasing it because I always say that we'll know when green chemistry was successful when the term green chemistry goes away because uh, – uh, when that 's simply the way that we always do chemistry, but so I, I say that there 's good news and then there 's better news okay so the good news is that uh, there are networks of gr- green chemistry research and industry uh, in somewhere around thirty five countries around the world i couldn 't even begin to name all of the companies that are um, uh, that are incorporating green chemistry or the schools that are teaching green chemistry that 's the good news. Mm. The better news, from my perspective, is all of that activity and all of, uh, uh, all of that uh, research, science, industry represents perhaps 1% of the power and the potential of green chemistry. So when um, a Wall Street analyst, Pike Research, comes out and puts out a report saying that green chemistry is expected to go to a $100 billion industry by 2020, I think that that's fantastic. Uh, but I, I think that it really touches every sector.
1: Question uh, from a viewer, this uh, by email from Neil Burns, uh, who asks, and to some extent you address this question, but uh, can you cite some chemistry-based companies that are doing interesting things?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, thi- thi- not just interesting things, but things that you think are the right things.
0: Yeah. So that's the um, uh, that's the issue. We we see innovation out there all the time, and I, I think innovation is really at the core, heart, and soul of, um, uh, of what green chemistry is all about. It's not about... Uh, uh, making things less bad. It's how do you design things to be good. Um, uh, so when I think of companies, I, I mentioned P2 Science and, and that's a company that has uh, green chemistry in its DNA. It's uh, it's not only making superior products but it's trying to make uh, products also in a superior way. And, and so you look at this whole growing industry, the bio-based economy, uh, renewable and specialty chemicals, um, uh, I think that there's uh, just tremendous innovation out there right now.
1: Back to government for a second. Um, you have a long history with the Environmental Protection Agency, a-
0: and I have to say, being named by President Obama to the EPA was the the greatest professional honor of my career. It was really, a, uh, it was really quite a uh, uh, quite an honor to work with the folks down there because you think about all of the the stereotypes uh, of. of Government uh, workers. Yeah. I just don't know of more dedicated, hardworking people. It was fantastic.
1: I can imagine. Yeah. So you, I mean, you have lived in the belly of the beast of the science policy uh, universe in the United States. Um, is there a federal agency that you think is, um, whatever its mission, mm-hmm. in the best position to actually have? really meaningful, noticeable within our lifetime's effects on climate change? Is it the EPA, or is it um, the Department of Energy, or is it NASA, is it the
0: military? Right. So the um, the short answer is all of those agencies and, and, and far more are all parts uh, of the solution, can be parts yeah. of the solution. Uh, what's more, um, perhaps, Uh, important is that because of their legally defined missions, they're currently only pieces and they're fragmented. And whenever we've run the experiment where you uh, uh, approach problems in a fragmented way, you're going to wind up with unintended consequences. So uh, DOE has a certain mission. EPA has a certain mission. Uh, What we did uh, while I was down in... um, and Washington, is there's something called the National Science and Technology Council that is uh, ostensibly run by President Obama and um, and uh, actively chaired by his um, science advisor, pulling together all of the agencies around a um, a committee called the Committee on Environmental um, Environment, Natural Resources, and Sustainability, so that you had the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, together with the National Institutes of Health, with EPA, with FDA, with USDA, all of the different pieces so that you start getting alignment, so that you start getting integrative systems thinking. Mm. That is what's um, likely necessary in order to get the drivers moving in the right direction.
1: I'm going to take another question. Uh, This by email from Vahe Marganian, who asks about methane, and it sounds like uh, Would like you to elaborate a little bit why is methane such a potent greenhouse gas Um, and um, are we most concerned with human-made sources of it or natural sources of it
0: so um, methane is methane it's a carbon with four hydrogens and it really doesn't care whether it uh it came from a natural source or a uh uh, or a man-made source Uh, and so when we start thinking about methane as a greenhouse gas and why it's so potent uh, it's potent for the same reasons that, uh, that CO2 uh, is, and it all ha- has to do with the chemical bonds. When uh, you're having the, um, the, the activation energy, which stretches the bonds of the carbon and the hydrogen, or in the case of CO2, the carbon and the oxygen, that's what makes something a, um, uh, a greenhouse gas. And if, if something uh, does it more, uh, more effectively than another, it's a more potent greenhouse gas. So the ranking of all of these uh, gases is basically an intrinsic property of those molecules. Mm. So there are absolutely natural sources, whether it's uh, 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 marshes or uh, 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 the, the melting tundra or, or other uh, natural sources. Uh, but what we're seeing is with the growth in methane as a, as a fuel source with uh, with some of the latest developments in fracking, there's a lot of effort to focus on how much uh, of this is becoming fugitive emissions and and creating higher concentrations of methane in the environment. Mm -hmm. And whether or not that's leaky or tight, that system is going to be very consequential for near-term climate change.
1: We've talked a fair amount about uh, government's role in climate change and Mm -hmm. and the, the way that it might be done Differently and perhaps better. Yeah. Uh, there are individuals now who are getting very serious about climate change. Uh, you, you may have you may have seen the story in the New York Times. I, th- I think it was yesterday about uh, Tom Steyer, a San Francisco billionaire, who has taken a serious interest in climate change and is investing um, heavily in it. Um, the Times reported that he may spend as much as a hundred million dollars trying to influence um, elections. Uh, uh, in order to back candidates who he thinks will crack down on activities that are leading to climate change. Uh, how, in your view, can someone like Tom Steyer be effective?
0: Hmm. So I, I guess more than anything else, I come at most of these issues, of uh, whether it's climate change or sustainability generally, from the perspective that innovation is going to be necessary in order to change uh, the trajectory that we're on Mm -hmm. so how do we get that ecosystem that is necessary in order to facilitate innovation Um, so if we try to make things just a little bit more efficient a little bit uh, a little bit less bad that's not going to get us off our climate change trajectory that's not going to get us off our unsustainable trajectory that we're on we need game-changing innovations, which is why I'm so excited about um, this whole maker movement, this whole idea that people can invent, people can innovate. Um, and uh, when we look right here at Yale, at the at the new Center for uh, Engineering and Innovation Design, where students are, are making and creating, or uh, this is happening around the US, around the world. So people who are interested in, in Changing what the future looks like, I'd suggest that they be involved in enabling designing the future to look differently than it does today, because largely tomorrow is going to look like what we design it to look like. Mm.
1: Question uh, uh, by email from Elizabeth Grossman, who asks, is a policy that does not include any requirement for inherently safer technology going to adequately prevent incidents such as the Freedom Industries spill in West Virginia?
0: Yeah, the, the spill in West Virginia is an absolute tragedy, uh, and it's an ongoing tragedy. And it's a uh, it's a shame that it um, it makes a few headlines and then goes away when uh, when so many people can't drink their water. So we've had let's call it forty between forty and fifty years of uh, environmental policies that try to control exposure, set standards about you know quite frankly how bad you can be, how much you can pollute, and still not be breaking the law. Um, That is an important step to set uh, a floor uh, uh, of of how egregious it can be. But it's half a strategy. The other strategy has to be creating a race to the top. So the questioner is asking about um, can we pursue uh, inherently safer technology? Well, that's what green chemistry has been showing over the past 20 years. Green chemistry and green engineering are showing that you don't Um, have to compromise on performance, you can have exceptional performance um, and still make sure that it's inherently safer, inherently less polluting. Um, So I completely agree that uh, there's a lack of awareness what's possible, but those possibilities for inherently safer design, sustainable technologies need to be built into our policies, into our laws.
1: I wonder, uh, I don't know if I've asked this, and maybe you've answered it in response to another question, but can you cite a few examples of green chemistry at work that is green chemistry successfully done, the way you want to see it done, the way it should be
0: done? Um. Uh, yeah, certainly. Uh, when we talk about a lot of these, uh, these bio-based products that look across the life cycle on, on how they're not only less toxic but renewable uh, on, the, on the front end and degradable uh, at the back end, those are uh, a whole class of products. When we look at the area of catalysis that we mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. So we could say that it uses lower energy, causes less waste, uses less material, and at the same time, it's so economically profitable that there wouldn't be a chemical or petrochemical company in business without using catalysis. So it's infused um, uh, in uh, so many different places of where you can show that uh, green chemistry is causing sustainability and profitability at the same time problem is it's not systematic yet. We have countless anecdotes, but what we need to have this be is the default value for how we make our products and processes. Mm.
1: I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about what it's like to have to manage or be part of the response to a major environmental disaster. Mm. And I'm thinking of the BP oil spill, uh, which, and correct me if I'm wrong, occurred during your most recent stint
0: at uh, e- at EPA yeah no, that it was uh, uh, it's certainly a tragedy uh, the BP oil spill was um, uh, happened uh, while I was there Fukushima also happened mm-hmm. while I was uh, there the Fukushima meltdown mm-hmm. at uh, uh, of the nuclear reactors um, what is what is interesting is that when we are dealing with uh, with tragedies crises um, that we think it um, just natural that what we do is we call together all the different types of folks around a table. You, you usually have uh, some kind of um, nerve center where you react to these things. And so you, you'll you have um, the, the scientists and the engineers together with the policymakers, the communication specialists, the lawyers. Everyone's around the table, all hands on deck, because you know you need all of those different parts. Mm-hmm. Um, that happened in the BP oil spill. All hands on deck. It happened with Fukushima. We created the, these nerve centers. I think one of the lessons that that comes out of uh, these these reactions, which you know, thank goodness for the, the the reactions, because I think that those tragedies, as bad as they were, could have been even worse, mm. is that gathering folks together in a crisis is important. But what if your crisis is happening in slow motion? Mm. So we're seeing a lot of these challenges of sustainability, whether it's our, our water quality and quantity uh, depletion, with um, California showing uh, a, a drought that, uh, that is just... Um, historic. Historic, right. right, and, and, and Australia just emerging from one. Whether we're looking at the climate change crisis. These are crises happening in slow motion. Mm. Bi- biodiversity depletion. And we, we go through... Um, th- these different issues the same type of transdisciplinary integrative thinking where you bring together all the different perspectives, all the different skill sets is, is just as essential to addressing these problems that happen in slow motion as they are with the the egregious uh, explosions and, and meltdowns mm.
1: clearly there are individuals or organizations that are taking climate change very seriously in this country and elsewhere. Do you believe that our society here in the United States is, as a society, taking climate change seriously yet?
0: Uh, the short answer is not, uh, is not seriously enough. Uh, the, the short answer is no. Mm. Uh, so when we look at the status quo, whether it's with cl- uh, climate change where we're conducting an uncontrolled experiment on the only atmosphere that we have, mm-hmm. whether it's uh, we're talking about chemicals where we are uh, uh, allowing our products um, of daily use for for individuals for children to be contaminated with things that are going to potentially cause cancer um, cause reproductive and developmental effects, and somehow that that's that's accepted. Um, these are absurdities, that historical absurdities that I, I, I believe we will look back on and, and say, how could we have possibly accepted these things and taken these things in stride? Um, so I believe the status quo was somewhere between an absurdity and an obscenity, mm. that we allow these things to happen. Uh, contamination of our environment, changing and jeopardizing our, our children's health, um, so I am a sworn enemy of the status quo, which is why I think innovation and sustainable innovation is the the only path forward. So if we look at climate change, um, it it's always viewed as something off in the future, even though we're seeing it happening all around us now. When we look at uh, many of these um, toxic effects, we, we we think of them as happening to some to someone else. Yet we all know someone who uh, has suffered from them, if we ourselves haven't. So yeah we need to change the status quo and we need to uh, do it uh, rapidly.
1: I've been asking most of the questions, the viewers have asked some questions. Um, we're going to wrap it up in just a minute but I want to give you a chance to um, sort of offer a parting thought. If, if there's one thing that you would like to leave uh, the viewers with today about, one thought about green chemistry about the environment, about climate change, about science policy
0: Yeah. what is it? That, uh, that green chemistry Green engineering, sustainable design, it's all about innovation. It's all about the promise that creativity brings to us. And so you know, we we think that all that we have, and I mentioned earlier, all that we have in this world is energy and matter. That's that's all we have. Well, the truth of the matter is that's not all we have. We have creativity, we have spirit, we have innovation, we have commitment, we have dedication, and The power and potential of green chemistry, green engineering, sustainable design is to get us off our current trajectory and do it in a way that's going to result in um, just a far better world.
1: Paul Anastas, thanks for joining us on At Yale Live, and thanks to all of you for watching At Yale Live. Join us again next time. Good afternoon, and welcome to At Yale Live. I'm Eric Gershon. Today we talk chemistry, climate, and science policy with Paul Anastas, director of Yale's Center for Green Chemistry and Green Engineering. Often called the father of green chemistry, he has served in a series of high-level federal science policy posts, most recently as assistant administrator of the US EPA, where he led research. In the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, he was assistant director for the environment, as always, We'll take some of your questions, tweet us at Yale, or email us at socialmedia at Yale.edu. Paul Anastas, thanks for being with us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I'd like to ask you a question first about an essay that you wrote as a Uh schoolboy, I gather. That uh, somehow or other was noticed by the administration of Richard Nixon. Tell us, tell us that story about what was the essay about, and do you have any idea how the Nixon administration came <laughs> to know about it?
0: That is a that's a true story. That's funny because, uh, so I, I grew up in uh, Quincy, Massachusetts. It's a small town right south of Boston, and I was overlooking this beautiful wetland, uh, teeming with wildlife, all kinds of birds and, and, and things, until the bulldozers rolled in. And the bulldozers rolled in and now if you go up to where I was born you'll see nothing but uh, glass buildings of banks and insurance companies. So I was furious and I, uh, among other things, I wrote this essay because the EPA had just been founded and they were trying to popularize it and get attention. And so um, I wrote that essay as part of an essay contest never thinking that I was going to be uh, receiving some kind of recognition from Richard Nixon.
1: (laughs) That's who? Do you still have it?
0: Oh, it's on my wall. If you go to my office here at Yale, you will see uh, my plaque from Richard Nixon when I was uh, eight years old.
1: So, you went on, you became a scientist. Uh, You're often called the father of green chemistry. Uh, How did the term come about and
0: what is green chemistry? So, I'm very proud to be part of a worldwide community of folks that are doing green chemistry. The, the term, people think I'm joking uh, when they say, how did you come up with this term green chemistry? Because back 20 years ago, not everything was green this and green that. But green conjures up images of the environment and the natural world. But in the US, it's also the color of our money. And so really what green chemistry is about is how do you meet all of the goals of uh, making things healthier for people and the planet while at the same time meeting your economic goals and aligning those rather than having them work at cross-purposes, as we've done for so long. Say more. So green chemistry looks at the world recognizing that everything that we see, touch, and feel is a chemical. Uh, Everything that's the basis of our society and our economy is made from a chemical. And so when we look at all of the positive that chemistry has done, uh, revolutionized medicine, revolutionized agriculture communications that cannot be dismissed, but it also has to has to be recognized that uh, we did it in a with a lot of unintended consequences we We have to recognize that there's been uh, disasters love canal uh, uh, what we're doing with with climate change as we 'll talk about today uh, what we're doing even far more recently with uh, the tragedy in, in West Virginia and mm-hmm. the contamination of water. So green chemistry is simply saying we can do better. That in the same way that we'd never accept a beautiful building if it collapsed, we'd never uh, accept a delicious meal if it was poisonous, there's, there's no reason that we should accept the kind of behavior of, uh, of chemicals if they provide wonderful function but they cause toxicity and harm. Uh,
1: There's, as I understand it, sort of 12 core principles Mm -hmm. of green chemistry. Um, Is there a way to distill those 12 to one fundamental
0: principle? Yeah, the the 12 principles go across the the entire life cycle of a a chemical, from its feedstocks to what it does during use and end of life. But really, if you distill it down to uh, uh, one statement, it's design your products and your processes so that they reduce or eliminate hazards to human health and the environment that's it looking at the intrinsic hazard how can green
1: chemistry be used how is it being used how might it be used to help us address climate change is is there is it mitigating climate change and if not yet how could it
0: yeah absolutely So across a wide spectrum, green chemistry is being applied to problems that are directly relevant to climate change. So you obviously would start with alternative energies. Um, Alternative energies that are non-fossil based would be the the key way that that green chemistry is addressing them. Uh, I'd have to say uh, right here at Yale, uh, we have the Yale Energy Institute. And and some of the work uh, there and even in my own labs is looking at how you can split water to produce hydrogen as an energy source uh, and, and, in the process, generate water back as a byproduct. Uh, there's ways of looking at renewables, uh, uh, new generation biodiesel, all of these are directly related to, to green chemistry and, and require chemistry in order to, to do this. Uh, there's also a key area that's always been part of, uh, of chemistry that's now being looked at and that is catalysis. Catalysis is using a very small amount of a substance to make things happen faster, with less waste, and this has resulted in energy efficiencies across every sector of our economy. So yeah, green chemistry and climate change are, I would say, inextricably linked.
1: Science policy question. You spent a lot of time in Washington in various capacities, um, and not so long ago. Do you think that the science community could have done better to uh, convince policymakers and the public of the significant threat climate change poses to civilization sooner? And how might the science community have done that?
0: Yeah. So um, absolutely. I I think that when we look at – any of the great grand challenges that we're facing uh, around sustainability, climate change being uh, at the forefront. Uh, Communication is a a tremendous uh, challenge. Now the first chemist that I'm aware of uh, to raise a a flag on climate change was probably uh, Arrhenius back in 1896. And so it's not that it hasn't been known that increasing CO2 levels are going to uh, cause these types of effects. But the ability to, to communicate, the ability to make compelling cases and languages that people can understand, uh, whether it's the public, whether it's policymakers, uh, I think is a, is a tremendous responsibility of the scientific community and one that hasn't been uh, as embraced and engaged a, as it needs to be. Uh, you, you need to, to speak the language of the tribe you're talking to, mm. and if you need to convince policymakers, then having a scientific definition of the word uncertainty and a, um, a popular version of the mm. word uncertainty, that can, that can and is causing uh, so much difficulty in uh, communication.
1: Uh, you, you obviously get that because you've just articulated it nicely. Do you have the sense that uh, the other scientists uh, working in uh, science policy positions in Washington are really internalizing that and improving at that?
0: I, I'd suggest that maybe there's been uh, uh, a bit of historical. It's not my job. Mm. My job is to generate the the data, is to seek the truth, and it's not my job to to communicate or translate. Mm. Uh, I think that the that the scientific community writ large is is um, is learning the lessons and and in some cases reaping the bitter fruit of uh, mm-hmm. of that lack of emphasis on communication. So there's um, You know, communicating um, factual observations uh, is not the same as uh, becoming a subjective advocate. Mm -hmm. No scientist wants to become a subjective uh, advocate. Objectivity is absolutely essential. But being able to communicate that objectivity, it's my (laughs) my perspective that that's absolutely essential.
1: Slightly different take on a similar question. What is your view of the, the relationship between science and government policy? That is, they don't always seem to be
0: in sync. Right. So uh, when you look at the, at the fundamental science that's generated, the, the data that's generated, that is core foundational um, uh, to, uh, to the scientific um, uh, endeavor, right? But then you start saying, how do we put this in the context of, the, the role of government in trying to help individuals, help society, uh, and all of a sudden you have a, a lot of, of factors. Um, you want to make sure that when that decision process is, uh, is being made, and of taking science and, and turning it into policy, that it's not, that, that it's being done with some consistency. And so you generate policies, protocols for how you use the science. Getting those protocols for how you turn science into policy takes time and approval and goes through many hurdles. In that time, science is not standing still. So many of the protocols you're using to form the policy are no longer using the most up-to-date science. This is something that we need to um, address, recognize, and resolve. But it's, uh, uh, that conflict between science and policy in this area of science policy is a great challenge. I'm going to
1: take a question from a uh, viewer. This question comes uh, from Mark Johnson, who tweeted it at us. He asks, should we change policy to disaster mediation from fossil fuel substitutes?
0: Hmm. So when you look at the current state of affairs with regard to climate change, I'm thinking that most folks realize that we are no longer talking about avoiding the effects of climate change. Climate change is here we are going to have effects. And I can understand uh, why the um, the question is phrased And do we simply engage in disaster mitigation. But I think actually John Holdren, who is the president's science advisor, said it best, we have to manage the unavoidable and avoid the unmanageable. So it's absolutely true that we need to be thinking about adaptation. And um, President Obama what, two or three days ago just announced a uh, a fund uh, proposed a fund for climate adaptation but i think it's equally important that if we're going to um, avoid the worst types of consequences of climate change then we absolutely still need to take every action available to us currently.
1: another question This one uh... by facebook from david kim who asks, will energy consumption impact america as a viable threat in the next ten years
0: will our energy consumption
1: Will will energy consumption impact America as a viable threat in the next 10 years, which I, 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 it sounds to me like is a question about the way we're consuming energy now yeah. and whether we need to change it ASAP.
0: Yeah. I have to say that I'm, I'm probably a little bit of a, a, a heretic in these discussions because uh, we are uh, really not discussing whether or not we want to minimize energy use. We're surrounded by energy. We're swimming in energy. All that we have in this world and this universe is energy and matter. Uh, what we're talking about is is not minimizing all energy. That's, that's really uh, an impossibility. We're talking about the nature of the energy. Mm. Uh, so uh, when we start selecting the inherent nature, is it going to be uh, renewable or is it going to be depleting? Is, is, it, is it going to uh, be... Reminders are going to be harvested, whether it's harvested from uh, from the sun or from, uh, from the ground. So I'd say that I'm all for using um, uh, potentially even more energy as long as the nature of that energy is inherently more sustainable.
1: So uh, to follow up on that question, I think it was just yesterday that President Obama announced uh, that he's asked the EPA to draw up uh, new, tighter standards for fuel efficiency for really big trucks. Right. So right. what would your take
0: on that be? Oh, it's a, it's a very important step. It's, it's part of uh, the, the progression where there's been uh, addressing off-road vehicles. Then uh, there's the current process of addressing um, uh, various power plants uh, that's uh, ongoing even though these large vehicles make up a, a relatively small percentage of the, um, uh, of the vehicles on the road, I think it's 4 or 5% of the vehicles on the road, they have the, the energy demand and the, and, the, um, uh, and the impacts of about 50% of, uh, of all vehicle traffic. So taking on that very large issue I think is absolutely essential and part of a, a, a strategy that I think is being rolled out.
1: A lot of the conversation about climate change and a lot of the research seems to focus on carbon dioxide. Mm. Uh, and there are uh, good reasons and obvious reasons for that. Mm. But it's not the only greenhouse gas. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the other greenhouse gases, uh, perhaps methane,
0: mm-hmm. um, that are also a serious threat and how uh, we can address some of those? Certainly. So when you look at some of the um, the greenhouse gases, CO2 is obviously... Um, First and foremost, simply because of volume, uh, the, the the volume that's being pumped into the atmosphere is, uh, you know, when you have a gigaton uh, type of issue, that uh, that tends to be the headline. But you're absolutely right. So when you look at the, uh, our history of CFCs, CF, uh, CFCs and uh, uh, different CFCs, haylots. would
1: you define that? just Oh, certainly, yeah. uh,
0: chlorofluorocarbons, yeah. which are used as propellants, uh, they they could be used as fire extinguishing agents, uh, uh, which were being phased out uh, a number of years ago under the Montreal Protocol, they could have a potency as a greenhouse gas uh, 10,000 times or more than mm-hmm. of CO2. You mentioned um, methane. that uh, That is a much more potent greenhouse gas, but you also have to weigh how long is it going to stay in the atmosphere. CO2 might build up for um, a century or more, where the lifetime of of methane is more potent but a shorter lifetime. Mm. Uh, so when we start talking about energy shifts to methane due to fracking and things like that, you need to know, is that going to cause a short-term uh, a short-term spike in our global climate change concerns? Besides methane, others? Yeah, so the, the Halons, some of the people might remember the old Nike sneakers. Uh, uh, they were called Nike Airs. Well, the little bubble in Nike Air, that wasn't filled with air, uh, so so that uh, that halon was actually uh, one that had a, a greenhouse gas twenty six thousand times more potent uh, than uh, yeah than uh, CO two than CO two than CO two. Yeah. Uh, so and of course that was phased out uh, by a, a wonderful green chemist invention by a person named Richard Wool at the University of Delaware, and now it actually is air, in uh, in the Nike airs, but. Um, even such things as water vapor. The reason why so many of the uh, uh, concerns for greenhouse gases, the role of clouds, the role of water vapor in so many of our models is, uh, uh, is not straightforward. It makes it complex.
1: I'm gonna ask you a question about some work uh, you're doing here at Yale. Uh, you are the director uh, and, and uh, founder, one of the founders of the, the Center for Green Chemistry and Green Engineering here at Yale. Mm. Just give us a quick overview of the center and some of the projects that you're, uh, you're most interested in right now.
0: Great. Yeah, the so the Center for Green Chemistry and Green Engineering uh, at here at Yale is focused on um, not on just simply measuring, monitoring, reviewing, or assessing environmental problems. It's saying, what is the and therefore? okay, We have all of these challenges and therefore what do we do about it? So it's really uh, an innovation center. So we're doing fundamental research um, uh, across the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, the Chemistry Department, the School of Engineering, uh, and but it doesn't end there. The, the center has partnerships and programs with uh, the School of Law, the School of Management, the School of Public Health, the School of Divinity. Why? Because. It's not simply about doing basic research. It's about having those discoveries, having that awareness, and translating it into products and processes so that those will either be new companies, um, uh, new technologies that will be spun out. So one of the early companies that was spun out is something called P2 Sciences that's right here in New Haven. It makes renewable uh, specialty chemicals, everything from flavors and fragrances. Uh, and it's, uh, it's really, I, I don't even want to call it a startup. It's an emerging company that's, uh, that's there. And we're also spinning out things around lignin technology and catalyst technology. Some of our work will also inform next generation curriculum. How does it teach the next generation of scientists and engineers? Some of it might affect policy, but the whole point is that it's not enough to simply have some scientific result, submit it to a journal, and uh, let on. it be read by the yeah. scientist. We need to strive to make sure that it has an impact.
1: You mentioned the Divinity School. I'm yeah. very curious about that. What is? What are you doing with the Divinity School? Uh, so
0: um, when we're talking about sustainable technologies, everybody recognizes that it's not enough to just have a technological solution, that if you're going to uh, install this, whether it's in... Um, rural America and the developing world, that you're going to want to make sure that that technology, maybe it's around water purification or alternative energy, is uh, socially, um, culturally appropriate. Mm. Uh, and so dealing with those issues, we have some uh, wonderful partners who I think the the world of at the um, at the Divinity School. It's uh, uh, Mary Evelyn Tucker and John Grimm, who are uh, just tremendously thoughtful in this area. Hmm. Yeah.
1: To to what extent um, has green chemistry become mainstream, um, if it has? And if it hasn't, what's it going to take to make it mainstream? What's it going to take for green chemistry to not be an alternative chemistry but the only acceptable chemistry?
0: Yeah, no, that's a that's a great way of phrasing it because I always say that we'll know when green chemistry was successful when the term green chemistry goes away because uh, – uh, when that 's simply the way that we always do chemistry, but so I, I say that there 's good news and then there 's better news okay so the good news is that uh, there are networks of gr- green chemistry research and industry uh, in somewhere around thirty five countries around the world i couldn 't even begin to name all of the companies that are um, uh, that are incorporating green chemistry or the schools that are teaching green chemistry that 's the good news. Mm. The better news, from my perspective, is all of that activity and all of, uh, uh, all of that uh, research, science, industry represents perhaps 1% of the power and the potential of green chemistry. So when um, a Wall Street analyst, Pike Research, comes out and puts out a report saying that green chemistry is expected to go to a $100 billion industry by 2020, I think that that's fantastic. Uh, but I, I think that it really touches every sector
1: question uh, from a viewer this uh, by email from Neil burns uh, who asks and to some extent you addressed this question but uh, can you cite some chemistry based companies that are doing interesting things yeah um, thi- thi- not just interesting things but things that you think are the right things yeah
0: so that's the um, uh, that's the issue we we see innovation out there all the time and I, I think innovation is really at the core heart and soul of um, uh, of what green chemistry is all about it's not about uh, Uh, making things less bad, it's how do you design things to be good. Um, uh, So when I think of companies, I I mentioned P2 Science, and and that's a company that has uh, green chemistry in its DNA. It's uh, it's not only making superior products, but it's trying to make uh, products also in a superior way. And and so you look at this whole growing industry, the bio-based economy, uh, renewable and specialty chemicals. I think that there's uh, just tremendous innovation out there right now.
1: Back to government for a second. Um, you have a long history with the Environmental Protection Agency, a-
0: and I have to say, being named by President Obama to the EPA was the the greatest professional honor of my career. It was really a, uh, it was really quite a, uh, uh, quite an honor to work with the folks down there because you think about all of the the stereotypes uh, of. Government uh, workers. Yeah. I just don't know of more dedicated, hardworking people. It was fantastic.
1: I can imagine. Yeah. So you, I mean, you have lived in the belly of the beast of the science policy uh, universe in the United States. Um, is there a federal agency that you think is, um, whatever its mission, mm-hmm. in the best position to actually have? really meaningful, noticeable within our lifetime's effects on climate change? Is it the EPA or is it um, the Department of Energy
0: or is it NASA, is it the military? Right. So the um, the short answer is all of those agencies and, and, and far more are all parts uh, of the solution, can be parts yeah. of the solution. Uh, what's more, uh, perhaps, Uh, important is that because of their legally defined missions, they're currently only pieces and they're fragmented. And whenever we've run the experiment where you uh, uh, approach problems in a fragmented way, you're going to wind up with unintended consequences. So uh, DOE has a certain mission. EPA has a certain mission. Uh, What we did uh, while I was down in... um, in Washington is there's something called the National Science and Technology Council that is uh, ostensibly run by President obama and um, and uh, actively chaired by his um, science advisor, pulling together all of the agencies around a um, a committee called the Committee on environmental um, Environment Natural Resources, and Sustainability, so that you had the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, together with the National Institutes of Health, with EPA, with FDA, with USDA, all of the different pieces so that you start getting alignment, so that you start getting integrative systems thinking. Mm -hmm. That is what's um, likely necessary in order to get the drivers moving in the right direction.
1: I'm going to take another question. Uh, This by email from Vahe Marganian, who asks about methane, and it sounds like... uh, would like you to elaborate a little bit why is methane such a potent greenhouse gas Um, and um, are we most concerned with human-made sources of it or natural sources of it
0: so um, methane is methane it's a carbon with four hydrogens and it really doesn't care whether it uh, it came from a natural source or a uh, uh, or a man-made source Uh, and so when we start thinking about methane as a greenhouse gas and why it's so potent uh, it's potent for the same reasons that, uh, that CO2 uh, is, and it all ha- has to do with the chemical bonds. When uh, you're having the, um, the, the activation energy, which stretches the bonds of the carbon and the hydrogen, or in the case of CO2, the carbon and the oxygen, that's what makes something a, um, uh, a greenhouse gas. And if, if something uh, does it more, uh, more effectively than another, it's a more potent greenhouse gas. So the ranking of all of these uh, gases is basically an intrinsic property of those molecules. Mm. So there are absolutely natural sources, whether it's uh, 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 marshes or uh, 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 the, the melting tundra or, or other uh, natural sources. Uh, but what we're seeing is with the growth in methane as a, as a fuel source, with uh, Uh, with some of the latest developments in fracking, there's a lot of effort to focus on how much uh, of this is becoming fugitive emissions and and creating higher concentrations of methane in the environment. Mm -hmm. And whether or not that's leaky or tight, that system is going to be very consequential for near-term climate change.
1: We've talked a fair amount about uh, government's role in climate change Mm -hmm. and and the, the way that it might be done Differently and perhaps better. Yeah. Uh, there are individuals now who are getting very serious about climate change. Uh, you, you may have you may have seen the story in the New York Times. I, th- I think it was yesterday about uh, Tom Steyer, a San Francisco billionaire, who has taken a serious interest in climate change and is investing um, heavily in it. Um, the Times reported that he may spend as much as a hundred million dollars trying to influence um, elections. Uh, Uh, in order to back candidates who he thinks will crack down on activities that are leading to climate change. Uh, How, in your view, can someone like Tom Steyer be effective?
0: Hmm. So I I guess more than anything else, I come at most of these issues, of uh, whether it's climate change or sustainability generally, from the perspective that Innovation is going to be necessary in order to change uh, the trajectory that we're on. Mm -hmm. So how do we get that ecosystem that is necessary in order to facilitate innovation? Uh, So if we try to make things just a little bit more efficient, a a little bit less bad, that's not going to get us off our climate change trajectory, that's not going to get us off our unsustainable trajectory that we're on. We need game-changing innovations, which is why I'm so excited about um, this whole maker movement. This whole idea that people can invent, people can innovate. Um, and uh, when we look right here at Yale, at the at the new Center for um, Engineering and Innovation Design, where students are, are making and creating, or um, this is happening around the U.S. around the world. So, people who are interested in in changing what the future looks like, I'd suggest that they be involved in enabling designing the future to look differently than it does today, because largely tomorrow is going to look like what we design it to look like.
1: Mm. Question uh, uh, by email from Elizabeth Grossman, who asks, is a policy that does not include any requirement for inherently safer technology going to adequately prevent incidents such as the Freedom Industries spill in West Virginia?
0: Yeah, the, the spill in West Virginia is an absolute tragedy, uh, and it's an ongoing tragedy. And it's a uh, it's a shame that it um, it makes a few headlines and then goes away when uh, when so many people can't drink their water. So we've had let's call it 40 between 40 and 50 years of uh, environmental policies that try to control exposure, set standards about you know quite frankly how bad you can be, how much you can pollute, and still not be breaking the law. Um, That is an important step to set uh, a floor uh, uh, of of how egregious it can be. But it's half a strategy. The other strategy has to be creating a race to the top. So the questioner is asking about um, can we pursue uh, inherently safer technology? Well, that's what green chemistry has been showing over the past 20 years. Green chemistry and green engineering are showing that you don't, um, have to compromise on performance. You can have exceptional performance um, and still make sure that it's inherently safer, inherently less polluting. Um, so I completely agree that uh, there's a lack of awareness what's possible, but those possibilities for inherently safer design, sustainable technologies need to be built into our policies, into our laws.
1: I wonder. Uh, I don't know if I've asked this, and maybe you've answered it in response to another question, but. Can you cite a few examples of green chemistry at work that is green chemistry successfully done, the way you want to see it done, the way it should be done? um. Uh,
0: Yeah, certainly uh, when we talk about a lot of these these bio-based products that look across the life cycle on on how they're not only less toxic but renewable uh, on the the front end and degradable uh, at the back end. Those are uh, a whole class of products. When we look at the area of... Catalysis that we mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier. So we could say that it uses lower energy, causes less waste, uses less material, and at the same time it's so economically profitable that there wouldn't be a chemical or petrochemical company in business without using catalysis. So it's infused um, uh, in uh, so many different places of where you can show that uh, green chemistry is causing sustainability and profitability at the same time problem is it's not systematic yet. We have countless anecdotes, but what we need to have this be is the default value for how we make our products and processes. Mm.
1: I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about what it's like to have to manage or be part of the response to a major environmental disaster. Mm. And I'm thinking of the BP oil spill, uh, which, and correct me if I'm wrong, occurred during your most recent stint at uh, e- at EPA yeah Th-
0: that it was uh, uh, it's certainly a tragedy uh, the BP oil spill was um, uh, happened uh, while I was there Fukushima also happened mm-hmm. while I was uh, there the Fukushima meltdown mm-hmm. at uh, uh, of the nuclear reactors um, what is what is interesting is that when we are dealing with uh, with tragedies crises um, that we think it um, just natural that what we do is we call together all the different types of folks around a table. You, you usually have uh, some kind of um, nerve center where you react to these things. And so you, you'll you have um, the, the scientists and the engineers together with the policymakers, the communication specialists, the lawyers, everyone's around the table, all hands on deck because you know you need all of those different parts. Mm-hmm. Um, that happened in the BP oil spill, all hands on deck. It happened with Fukushima. We created the, these nerve centers. I think one of the lessons that, that comes out of uh, these, these reactions, which, you know, thank goodness for the, the, the reactions, because I think that those tragedies, as bad as they were, could have been even worse, mm. is that gathering folks together in a crisis is important. But what if your crisis is happening in slow motion? Mm. So we're seeing a lot of these challenges of sustainability, whether it's our, our water quality and quantity uh, depletion, with um, California showing uh, a, a drought that, uh, that is just... Um, historic. Historic, right. right, and, and, and Australia just emerging from one. Whether we're looking at the climate change crisis. These are crises happening in slow motion. Mm. Bi- biodiversity depletion. And we, we go through... Um, th- these different issues, the same type of transdisciplinary integrative thinking, where you bring together all the different perspectives, all the different skill sets is is just as essential to addressing these problems that happen in slow motion as they are with the the egregious uh, explosions and, and meltdowns. Mm.
1: Clearly, there are individuals or organizations that are taking climate change very seriously in this country and elsewhere. Do you believe that our society here in the United States is, as a society, taking climate change seriously yet?
0: Uh, the short answer is not, uh, is not seriously enough. Uh, the, the short answer is no. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when we look at the status quo, whether it's with cl- uh, climate change where we're conducting an uncontrolled experiment on the only atmosphere that we have, mm-hmm other words uh, we're talking about chemicals where we are uh, uh, allowing our products um, of daily use for for individuals for children to be contaminated with things that are going to potentially cause cancer um, cause reproductive and developmental effects and somehow that that's that's accepted um, these are absurdities, that historical absurdities that I, I i believe we will look back on and, and say, how could we have possibly accepted these things and taken these things in stride? Uh, so I believe the status quo was somewhere between an absurdity and an obscenity, mm. that we allow these things to happen. Uh, contamination of our environment, changing and jeopardizing our, our children's health. Uh, so I am a sworn enemy of the status quo, which is why I think innovation and sustainable innovation is the the only path forward. So if we look at climate change, um, it it's always viewed as something off in the future, even though we're seeing it happening all around us now. When we look at uh, many of these um, toxic effects, we, we we think of them as happening to some to someone else. Yet we all know someone who uh, has suffered from them if we ourselves haven't. So yeah we need to change the status quo and we need to uh, do it uh, rapidly.
1: I've been asking most of the questions, the viewers have asked some questions. Um, we're going to wrap it up in just a minute, but I want to give you a chance to um, sort of offer a parting thought. If, if there's one thing that you would like to leave uh, the viewers with today, about one thought about green chemistry, about the environment, about climate change, about science policy, Yeah. what is it?
0: That uh, That green chemistry Green engineering, sustainable design, it's all about innovation. It's all about the promise that creativity brings to us. And so you know, we we think that all that we have, and I mentioned earlier, all that we have in this world is energy and matter. That's that's all we have. Well, the truth of the matter is that's not all we have. We have creativity, we have spirit, we have innovation, we have commitment, we have dedication, and The power and potential of green chemistry, green engineering, sustainable design is to get us off our current trajectory and do it in a way that's going to result in um, just a far better world.
1: Paul Anastas, thanks for joining us on At Yale Live. And thanks to all of you for watching At Yale Live. Join us again next time.